please stand and listen to the word of the Lord? Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humbling position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Megan, for reading our text this morning. Uh, it's good to see your face. For those of you that don't know Megan, her recent journey has taken her down a path that's put her face to face with cancer. We are thankful that she is here and able to speak God's word to us this morning. When I noticed that she was on the schedule uh, for the scripture reading this morning, uh, I asked if she would be willing to share a bit of her journey with us. She, uh, she asked if she could write her thoughts down, and I said, absolutely. And I'd like to share with you her thoughts uh, as it applies directly to our series on joy. Joy and cancer. There are a lot of words associated with cancer, but joy is not usually one of them. But if I honestly reflect on my journey, having cancer has brought me to a place of deep joy in my relationship with Christ and I have not that I have not walked in for a long time, if ever before. It's not been a happiness about circumstances, but rather a release. A cancer diagnosis takes you to the edge, the place where you stare over the edge of the canyon into the valley of dry bones. You are confronted with the fact that you are going to die one day which is true for everyone, but somehow having cancer makes the certainty of death so terribly real and the possibility of it happening so soon completely gut-wrenching. I spent some time plumbing the depths of my fear, figuring out what it was, what it was I was really afraid of. It wasn't death itself. I feel like I could face death quite bravely if that was the path the Lord had for me, but imagining my children growing up without their mother, my husband becoming a widower, and a single father in one fell swoop, the what-ifs brought me to my knees, literally. The fear I felt about my loved ones losing me and what the fallout from that loss might be was agonizingly visceral. For the believer, there is no place to go when you get to the bottom of those fears, except to the foot of the cross. And there, where I laid my most excruciating fears at Jesus' feet, he gave me truth. 
The truth is that my days are written in his book. The truth is that his grace is enough, not only for me to deal with cancer, but enough for any what if I could imagine. The truth is that he loves my family members more tenderly than I ever will. If the unthinkable should happen, they will not be abandoned by their Abba. The truth is cancer is nothing compared to the power of my God. And he's not interested in writing a story of me fretting about what may happen, but rather a story of transformation. Fear had made my spirit shrink, but now I was a warrior. I asked God how he wanted to teach me and shape me through this. I welcomed his instruction and I submitted to his refining fire. And oh my goodness, can I tell you about the joy. To me, it is a joy to know that God's hand is at work in my life through the tempest of cancer. The joy of welcoming his shaping, correction, and tempering through this trial is deep joy. Is there any greater joy than to know that you are being trained by your king? Nothing strengthened, nothing strengthened me more than that thought. Saying yes to the work of God's spirit brings peace and hope and joy. Walking my cancer journey with Jesus freed me from my fears and released me into joy. Dare I even say this was a gift. Lord, I pray this morning for soft hearts, uh, that there would be a spirit of unity. Um, Lord, that there would be a yearning for a shared joy among us, that tenderness and compassion would be here, and that we would be willing to let go of our agendas in life if those agendas are not you. So, look, I wanted to share you with you um, her letter, her words, because Paul, at the beginning of this passage, he fires off some questions. He immediately asks one question, and it's, is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? And that word fellowship can also be translated as a shared joy. So it's good to hear the testimony of joy that others have so we can truly share the joy together. Thank you, Megan. As I said, we see that Paul fires questions off. Jason's already brought those up this morning. I want to look at him again. He asks very simply, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? In Paul's writing, there's this assumption that each of these propositions should be true. Paul's being rather rhetorical in his line of questioning. These questions aren't here for us to give a simple yes or a no answer to. They're meant to challenge us. I know sometimes rhetorical questions can be put there to silence a person. They can be used as a means to get a desired answer. However, in this case, they are meant as exhortations. And when we look carefully, we see that Paul is really calling them out. We, he, uh, we see in verse 2, he says, Then make me truly happy. Some translations read, Then complete my joy, or make my joy complete. There's this notion that Paul's joy is connected to the church, and they were falling short in some way. So Paul gives them more, in, uh, more exhortation and more instruction when he says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, 
and working together with one mind and purpose. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Personally, this passage is terrifyingly personal. This is about my selfish problem. This is about your selfish problem. This is about how we do like to impress others. It's about how you are disagreeable. This is about your divisiveness. It's about your stubbornness. This is about how you think you are better than everyone else. This is about the arrogance of how your experience trumps everything in the room. Somehow you have all the answers. And I know these are very, very heavy words that he's writing. The more I've read this scripture, the more I came to the place that this is first for me. And I need to say that this morning. This isn't for all the people that I disagree with or all of the people that disagree with me. And and it's easy to say, but John, you don't understand. I'm actually on the right side of the issue. I'm on the right team. We slowly start to miss his point when we start to make that case. You say, but I really did deserve the recognition. I'm the man. Are you? I said what I said because someone had to say it. Really? You had to? You had to put that person in their place? You really brought everything together. Good job. It worked out smoothly. And we all know. I love the very simple cross-reference to this passage in Romans 12.10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. As a note, because I work with teenagers, this affection is simply a genuine love for a fellow believer. So guys and girls don't get any ideas. I think if we're honest, Paul does give us a hard list of things in this passage. We actually can do these things, and I know this because I've actually seen the lives of non-believers pull these things off quite well. And that might be surprising to you. Paul doesn't stop with the church. He actually continues, and he sort of brings us to this crescendo, I think, in verse 5, where he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. I'd say that's a rather pivotal verse. Can we just say that out loud together? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. One more time. Uh, It's good for us to express this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He's saying, here's what I need you to do. This is the viewpoint you must take. This is your mindset. As they would say in the South, I need you to do what I need you to do. Do this. But it's a whole nother thing to have the attitude of Christ in everything you do. So this week, in your homes, in your reach groups, at work, at school, parents to children, children to parents, I'm going to commission you to, after every request you make someone else, I want you to add to that request, you must do this, 
with the same attitude as Jesus. Okay? Um, so I'm going to give you, for example, how this works, how this might work in my house this week, okay? So about five or six mornings uh, out of the week, uh, the alarm clock goes off, and I whisper to Shay, would you make the coffee? And about five or six mornings out of the week, she makes the coffee. So this week I'm going to say, would you make the coffee? And you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. And I want to invite you guys to look and see if the smoke is rising in Arden. And, and I'm also going to go ahead and just, we're going to be ready, uh, our church leadership is, for all of the counseling phone calls that we're going to get throughout the week as you guys put that into practice. Um, in all seriousness, what would your relationships look like if after every request that was made of you, every dialogue, every interaction, every debate every disagreement, you simply said to yourself, I must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. How would your relationship look with your husband or your wife or your boss or your coworkers or your fellow students and your teachers and, and parents, the children? I think we would treat our children differently. It's not just for the children. This is as much for the parents. I think it would be very different. It would be very different in my house. Uh, for me, if I'm honest, I think I would walk around a lot less defensive, for one. I'm preaching this to myself as much as I am to you. You, know, you need to know this. I think for some, anger would just melt away. Tradition would give way. For some, it may mean that tradition actually becomes respected a little more. I think the laziness and indifference would be called to action. It's possible that our sharp edges could be smoothed a bit. Entitlement would shift to thankfulness, and stinginess would move to generosity. I think when we have the same attitude as Jesus, our lives become open books, masks come off, and walls just they crumble in our relationships. Paul, in this passage, is urging us to stay together. I think it's possible that when we, that we think that iron sharpening iron is a bit of a cliche. Because oftentimes we see that, well, I'm the diamond, and you're the piece of iron, and I'm here to sharpen you. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. I was reminded of this twice this week. I met with a pastor once and a very dear friend on Friday. I was reminded of just how dull I am. We need the iron. It's not a cliche. This is what Paul is talking about. What if your greatest strength was that you have the same attitude as Jesus? It's a valid question. What if people, when they thought of you, they thought, yeah, that, that Joseph... She really is like Jesus. She has the attitude of Jesus. Sorry to pick on you, Joseph. You're just right there. And you're a worthy, so I can do that. Um, thank you. What if that was what people thought about you? Oh, yeah. She has the attitude of Jesus. He has the attitude of Jesus. Instead of all of the other things that people think about when they think about us, the things that we align with, 
all of our other concerns. As a church, what if Highland, this has been my prayer this week, what if Highland was simply known in our community as a church that had the attitude of Jesus? It's that simple. What if we fulfilled that calling as a body? It's a reasonable question in light of the scripture. And there's a lot going on in this passage. I don't know how many sermons could be born from this passage, but Paul is pointing out to our dire and desperate need for Jesus. And at the same time, he's exhorting us and, com- and commanding us to think a certain way. Have you heard the phrase, attitude is everything? This is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, have this viewpoint, have this mindset. I'm afraid, though, that when we hear, have the right attitude, have a better attitude, have a good attitude, we're drawn to motivational talk, self-coaching, and endless tasks that honestly at times leave us with an attitude that's worse than when we started. I don't like spending a whole lot of time on the lies that the enemy sends us. We see them often enough. Um, However, I do want to mention that some of them, so we're able to spot them when we see them in the world. I I did a little bit of Googling, and I learned that Reader's Digest says to have a good uh, attitude, you need to just tell yourself you can change. And that's it. You tell yourself you can change. Secondly, I I love this one, just go someplace else. Do you have a bad attitude? You don't like the attitude of somebody else? Just go someplace else. Walk out of the room. Lifehack.org says you need to determine your own reality. Really? I also say that this was a good one. Exercise more because it's, because it's the natural feel-good drug. That's how you have a good attitude. They say also to overload your brain with positivity through books, audio, and video. And I have a picture of all people with bad attitudes, which is all of us, by the way, sitting in front of screens all day long, never interacting. That's how we combat it. Inc.com says you need to ignore whiners and complainers. So just ignore whiners and complainers. That's how you have a good attitude. We're just going to ignore people. And then lastly, the other one I thought was good, just use more positive vocabulary as if the way we talk changes our attitude. By the way, there were hundreds of links to nine ways to this and 15 ways to a better attitude. None pointed to Jesus like Paul did. And from what I could read, 100% of them suggested that an attitude change comes from things that we do on the outside to fix the inside. I dare say that none of these things produce the attitude of Christ. Truly, the best way to know how to have the right attitude is to simply study the life of Christ and follow Him. So as Christ followers, as Christians, as ones who profess to be like Him, we have to take Paul's commands with the utmost of seriousness. We all desperately need the Word of God to be implanted deep within us in a way that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish the attitude of Christ. Then, by His power, we are capable of having the attitude of Christ. So after Paul drops this on us, he does what he's done in his letters time and time again. He points to Jesus. In many of your Bibles, in this next section, you'll see that it's either indented or it's formatted differently in the paragraph. This is because he's actually going into a section that it's been thought is more of a hymn or a poem. It's a type of poetry. Um, 
And it's no surprise because hymns and poetry often contain very tightly compressed truth. There's no wasted words. It's a very highly concentrated summary of what it looks like to adopt the attitude of Jesus. When he writes, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You've probably heard the phrase, no one has ever started so high and ended up so low than our Lord. This passage must be where that phrase is sourced. We see this as we journey through the verses. In verse 6, we see him as God. He pre-existed his birth. He is equal with God. He was not a created being, nor was he an angel. We see that he didn't have to cling to being God, because he is God. He didn't have to clutch his deity. Neither did he seize it. It had always been his, and he never set it down, and he never lost it. He chose to forgo all of his rights. He used his equality with God as an opportunity not to build himself up. Note the emptying. It did not empty him of his deity. It did not empty him of his holiness. In doing so, we'll later see how he would be magnified even more. He simply set aside his privilege and his status. And also in this emptying, he gave up his face-to-face relationship with his father. Do you remember as a child? I I remember as a child. I was that kid. I'm just going to go and say this before preface this next part. Maybe your children or you've known another child. I remember as a child, I would go away to my aunt's house. Four or five years old, go away for about a week. This was before FaceTime, and this was back in the day of long distance phone calls. Who, who knows what a long distance phone call is that you have to pay for? All right, all right, that's cool. I, I was afraid that no one would understand what that meant, okay? And young people are like, what do you mean? Like, free minutes, right? No, you used to have to think about who you called before you called them because you knew it was going to cost money. I'd go away to my aunt's house for many days. Man, I would be homesick. And I can guarantee you, about after the second night, I'm bawling like crazy. I'm, I want my mommy. I want to talk to my daddy. Where are they? All too often, when we think of the humiliation of Christ and all of the things he gave up, we do go straight to the cross, and I think that's okay. We're going to get there, too, and that's beautiful. But I think we forget... We overlook easily that he left the face-to-face relationship that he had with the Father. And that was critical in how he emptied himself. It would do us good to think about what it feels like to walk away from a loved one for an extended period of time. Christ walked that walk. It says he took the humble position of a slave. He became the bottom of the rung. Slaves, they... They don't have land, they don't have house, they don't have money, they don't have rights. He existed to do the will of his father, because that's what a humble slave does. 
obey his master. Paul says he appeared in human form. This is where we understand that he was fully God and he was fully man. He breathed our air. He suffered temptation. He felt pain. He hungered. He wept. He likely laughed. It's one of the things I I, I really want to know about Jesus. You know, what kind of jokes does Jesus laugh at? He... In Luke 2.52, it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Here we see a boy became a man. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. Hebrews 5.8 says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. It's interesting. Isaiah 53, 2. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. What's that mean? He didn't stand out in a crowd. I'd say he was average at best. He had no majesty about him. He had nothing to attract us to him. I'm convinced because he was common, typical in the crowd. No one cares about his status updates. He didn't have hundreds of friends. And yet this is whom we're to follow. This is the person whose attitude we are called to match. And the passage continues. He humbled himself to the point of death. The father didn't force death on him. He chose this path. Just like his appearance, his death was not dignified. His death was shameful, it was disgusting, and it was disgraceful. The Roman crucifixion cross was the the most brutal form of sadistic torture known to man. It was the cruelest form of capital punishment, And it was the entire defamation of a whole person. The inequity of the cross was the greatest inequity ever known. Jesus never once demanded equality. He took the humble position of a slave. This is the attitude of Christ that Paul is speaking of. When we look at the cross, may our attitude never be, it's my way or the highway. May it never be, this is what I want, or I did it my way. May we yield to one another. And can I just say, in this environment that we're in today, this is so anti-American, if we're honest. The way of the cross is not how most of us have been raised. Jesus didn't look after his rights. His attitude was to give them all up. And and that's crazy talk today. It's crazy talk. We don't think like that. As a teenager and as a child, I was told that I should dare to be great. I'll never forget those words. And I was challenged to buy into motivational jargon. Some would say that it would do me good to read motivational writings, but I I still, I've I've actually never read a motivational book to this day. Um, It was prevalent in our family. Um, 
the reason for this, I think, was because at an early age, the Holy Spirit, God's Word was prevalent, and I could recognize the lie even as a child. And I started learning that there's no room for greatness in humility. And after meditating on this scripture this week, I've come to the place and the conclusion that you're either last in line or you're not humble. And those are heavy words. There's no room for joy if pride is present. There's no humility in me first. No one, it's been said, no one swaggers into the kingdom. Mm -mm. We all come crawling. According to another fun survey, I love seeing what the world looks, what's the world look like in these things? Salary.com says that the seven noble virtues in the workplace, they're prudence, justice, charitability, being trusting, being courageous, being optimistic, and lastly, so that we don't have too much of those things, restraint. Shay and I talked earlier in the week, what are the virtues that people pursue? We came up with quite a comprehensive list on the couch. It included creativity, discipline, charm, wit, decisiveness, grit, determination, and our list went on and on. I was so curious this week that I asked people at work, you know, what virtue do you pursue in your life? What do you treasure? What do you value? And, and I was told, um, I, actually, I even went to Starbucks Friday night, and I just randomly asked people I didn't know. They're like, who's this crazy guy asking me this question about virtue? And I got answers. I was told that people want to be trustworthy and dependable. They want to love well. And one person who actually was a staff member at a church, thought it was interesting, the most important virtue he looked for, I'm not going to say what church it was, it's not ours, um, he wanted to be organized. That was it, if I could just be organized. I dare say being lowly of mind does not reach any of these lists. Being lowly of mind does not hit our top ten list. I dare say that being humiliated in life is not very high on our bucket list. You don't see the dog-eat-dog, rat-race, climb-the-corporate-ladder folks being overrun by the humble. And yet, this is the attitude of Christ. This is our calling. We're never more like the enemy when we put ourselves over others. And we're never more like Jesus than when we lay down our life for someone else. We're told in scriptures to clothe ourselves in humility. In Fight Club last week, uh, our teenagers discussed what it looks like to lay our lives down for others. And sadly, we oftentimes associate laying our lives down for others as the big heroic things in life. I wonder if it's not more like a life of dying a thousand cuts. Maybe it's not the big things. What if laying your life down looked more like just rearranging your schedule every day for the benefit of other people or letting others' preferences dominate your own? Paul continues after giving us this example of Christ. He exalts Christ. 
Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in this exaltation that the name of Jesus every knee would bow. I think it's no coincidence that this passage was on the sermon calendar months ago. Can I just ask you guys, is it just me or like, is there a lot of talk about kneeling lately? Like a little bit, a little bit? Is it just me? It seems like it's on the news, it's on the Facebook feed. Everywhere I turn, all of a sudden, kneeling is a very, very important issue to us. And I just want to say that no matter what side you are on, I mean, I almost feel like this week I've had to clarify, hi, I'm John, good to meet you, I'm a kneeler, or I'm, I'm a stander, I'm an I'm a arms locked, one hand over my chest kind of guy. You know, no matter where you land, you, you're like, like people want to know, what, what do you think about this? I'm genuinely not poking fun. I just can't keep track of it all, to be honest. I read the myriad of sources and opinions about who's doing what and for what reasons, and it's a bit maddening. I think over the past week it's possible, and I say this about the last week, it's possible that we have cared more about who stands or kneels before an anthem or a flag than who will kneel and when before Jesus. And I know that's a little cliche. I want to say I didn't get that from a meme, okay? Because those exist, and and I kind of just dismiss those. But I want to ask the genuine question, is that possible? It's true that Jesus won't negotiate with the American church over equality. We don't need a man-made document to cite this. God's Word is pretty good at covering it. We don't need that. There won't be an American embassy in heaven... And while there are many Americans singing glorious songs to Jesus there, they're not singing songs about the glories of America. It's also true that we must follow a biblical model for protest. Our motives must be in obedience to God. Our methods must demonstrate His love. And our mission must always be for the advancement of the gospel. So brother and sister, I urge you, be careful who you align yourself with. This is the word of God concerning this topic in Philippians 2.2. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Judging by the response that I've seen, I think there are some, frankly, on both of these sides that still care more about the standing and kneeling than they do if their neighbor, their co-worker, or their friend or family are willing to kneel before Christ. The truth is, our flags are all going to be burned up one day, our lips won't be singing America the Beautiful, and the NFL will be a distant memory. All of our borders, our walls, and our divisions, they will crumble. So I leave you with three questions. What if our kneeling before him was of a higher priority than any of these other things? 
What if the greatest strength was your utter weakness and dependency on God? What if having the attitude of Christ was the driving factor in all of your thoughts? And Ban, you can come forward. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we remember what Jesus did. We remember together. We fellowship in what Christ has done on our behalf at the cross because we had no capacity to step up for ourselves. There's nothing that we've done to earn or change His favor. There's no room for us picking up the tab that our sin has left us with. We have a shared joy in what Christ did for all those who believe. Jesus' death did not merely make all mankind potentially savable, nor did His death simply achieve a hypothetical benefit Neither did his death make us redeemable. Instead, Jesus actually redeemed us through his death. And this is good news. So I invite you to the corners of the room. Each of these elements, we have simple elements in the corner of the rooms. They echo the attitude of Christ. If we think about it, bread having little flavor. Juice having little potency. These represent the body and the blood of our Lord and how He secured and He preserves our security in Him. Pray with me. We are thankful for Your Word, Lord. May we share joy in this time together as we remember Your death and Your burial and Your resurrection. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.